my hope is that you're having a great week and that you're experiencing something of what God is doing in your life and that you're aware of that and have some understanding of that. A couple announcements before we jump into the message today. Um, our children's ministry needs some assistance and help with some teachers, some folks to run check-in, which is just the beginning, you know, part of the service. And so you could do that and then actually come to church. You wouldn't have to go to two services. Uh, but, and then they also need some folks helping in the nursery area to hold some babies. I mean, goodness sakes, you should pay to do that is what I'm saying. So uh, all that to say, um, if you would like to help, it'll, it'll really help with two things for you. You'll get to know some people and work alongside them. And uh, if you learned anything through COVID, it could be through the pandemic that you recognize that some of your relationships need some attention or you need some folks to really journey with you well. And if that's the case, that's a great place to get to know some people. And you get to meet some need, needs here in the church and give, give back some. So we would love for you to do that. One of the things that we want to mention before we jump in, so uh, we're going to engage in a shift in things next week, uh, especially for this service. And if you're watching online, we hope that um, as you consider coming back, know that you know, we're, we try to be safe, make some room for some social distancing if that's what you like. Some folks wear masks in church. Obviously, I don't while I'm preaching, uh, but we do have the system that helps keep everybody clean and healthy in terms of purifying our air. So with all that in mind, uh, we're bringing snacks back. Um, and so you can clap for snacks. That's fine. And our Wellspring friends are going to help make that happen. Um, but here's it's sort of a good news, bad news thing for, for uh, the 1030 service, the second service. Um, we're bringing snacks back, but they're happening in between the services. And so we're going to do snacks um, after the first service, but before this service kicks off. You might not have been aware that there is a before this service begins, because when you come in, it's already begun, um, which is fine. Nobody's griping at you. It's all good. No, nobody's up on your grill about this. Um, but if you did want a cookie, if you did want some tasty snacks, you need to come before church. So what we'd love to do, we just had a little chat with nine o'clock and we said to them, hey, after church, don't run off. We want you to hang. Stay after church. And we're going to not use the back doors so much anymore and open up these doors and the garage door. And we're going to hang out in the cafe and in here as well. And we want you to, you know, pass like ships in the night with these people that you haven't seen in two years. And we would love for you to say hello and, you know, greet some people. And there's some folks around that you've never met. And we would love for you to get to know them, at least uh, name and a face and kind of get started in uh, getting to know them a bit. So from about 10.05, when the second, first service ends, to about 10.30, we would love for you to come as the first service is wrapping up. And, uh, and, if, and you can still come late to church. It's fine. You can chat in the lobby and just come in late. I don't care. It's all good. Josh doesn't even mind. He's doing his thing for the Lord, not for you. So, um, <laughs> so we, we can park down the gravel if we need more space and the parking lot will, will hold. But we would love for the two services to co-mingle a bit and for you to get to see some people. Um, and that would be pretty great. Uh, here's another little cool thing that's going to happen next Sunday. Um, in addition to the snacks in the middle of the lobby being filled with some food and our drinks, uh, we uh, are going to have a little coffee upgrade next week. So we have some coffee today, and it's fine. You know, it's coffee, right? Uh, but next week, we will begin serving every Sunday 
coffee that's made from these beautiful beans that were grown in Guatemala, virtue, uh, through our World Orphans uh, partners. And so uh, we're excited about that. Scott has given us a sweet deal um, to make that happen. And so we would love for you to come and enjoy uh, some Guatemalan coffee. Okay, you can clap for that too. That's great. That's good. And so if you haven't yet been to the collective, I have, and, and had a delicious latte served up by the Brock girls, uh, Lindsay and Amy and some of their staff, they made me an incredible latte with this Guatemalan coffee. It's so good. It's delicious. It's good. I mean, I'm not saying our coffee isn't good, but I'm saying this was really good. And, uh, and so we'll upgrade that and have some snacks and we want you to come early and hang and see some people. And that starts next Sunday. We would love for you to do that. So we began this series called Follower a few weeks ago, and we're all in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters for a while, and we're going to take our time walking through it so that you and I can kind of find our way again, okay? And so we began with this understanding. Just a quick review. Uh, When Jesus invited his followers to join him on the journey, he did it this way. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they, and in this case, it was Andrew and Peter and James and John, they left their nets and they followed him. This, this is the same invitation that Jesus gives to you today. The invitation isn't, you know, believe every word here, although Jesus will take you down a path to a place where you eventually understand what he says in every way, or find yourself obedient in everything you do. I don't know anybody Now, in my life, that's living that way and obedient in every possible way. Nobody I know does that. And so Jesus isn't saying any of these things that are so lofty that you can't begin to follow him. His invitation is, just follow me. But I I don't, now don't worry about it. We'll figure it out as we go. But what if I, that's okay, don't worry about it. What do I need to do? What what do I need to think? What do I need to believe? What do I need to agree with you on? Don't worry about it. Just follow me and we'll work that out as we go. That's how Jesus treated these men and women that became his disciples at the very beginning. And I gave you these observations as we got started. If you missed, you can go back and listen. Jesus seems to go out of his way to invite people who are very different from each other. Look around the room and you'll notice that that's true today. And you'll see that some people in here are very, very different from you. As followers of Jesus, we're all headed in the same direction and the same destination. And this is why that matters, because when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't say, well, I mean, you're going to go north, and you're going to go south, and you're going to end up someplace else. Jesus says, we're all kind of headed in the same direction. How I teach, what I say, where we're going, it's the same direction, same destination, same thing. Jesus' teachings for you are the same as they are, <clears throat> excuse me, as they are for me. But even more powerful than that is this. Each person begins their walk from a unique place. Some of you started when you were 12. Some of you started when you were 18. Some of you grew up Catholic or Episcopalian or nothing or whatever, religiously speaking. And so everybody begins in a different place, a different set of values, a different set of understanding, a different worldview altogether. And this is so important that you keep this in mind because just in a few chapters, Jesus is about to lay down some pretty hard-to-live relational truth like... Do not judge. I mean, it'd be great if he said, you know, except for those people, but he didn't. Jesus said, do not judge. And and that's okay for you to hear that, especially when you remember that everybody begins their walk from a unique place. I don't know where you started. I don't know where you are on the journey. All I know 
is that Jesus invites us to follow him and we're going the same direction. So we have some things to talk about, about what that looks like. It doesn't even matter, even if we believe different things about maybe some pretty important subjects to me and to you, we can journey together. And that's what's missing in the body of Christ right now. Because we are a community of line drawing, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, that there has to be agreement and unity means that we think the same things on all things. And that's not what unity means at all. And so that's why these are important. And so we laid these out at the beginning, but they're things that we'll keep in mind as we go. And what we asked you to do as we go through this series, and this is so important, is to engage in some conversations with people that you know who also follow Jesus. It could be in your family, it could be friends, it could be people you work with, it could be people in the small group or the study that you're in, it could be anyone that's exploring faith or hip deep in faith, it doesn't matter. But we wanted to give you some questions that will help spur some conversations about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because this is what I think. I think you know how to talk about sports I think you know how to talk about the weather. I think you know how to talk about politics, even if you do it with a, you know, a red face and, and screaming anger or whatever. I think you know how to talk about a lot of things, but very few people that I know know how to talk about faith in thoughtful, sort of pushing, guiding, encouraging kinds of ways. And so we're going to help you do that. And we'll give you the questions. And you can even say, if you need to, you don't even know how to start. My pastor said to do this, and so we're, I'm just going to do this. You, know, you don't even have to act like you like it. Um, but you can just engage in it and take a step that direction. So every week we're going to give you a question or two to ponder and then have a chat around the dinner table or with some friends. And this is the one we gave you a few weeks ago. What bias are you likely to bring to scripture? It's a fun question because most of us think we see scripture as it is. We think, well, I don't read the scripture with any bias. I just open up and I read it. And that's, it means what it says and it says what it means. And all of us have some sort of bias. When we read scripture, we have a lens that we use. And that lens means that we think Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat, or clearly he was a capitalist or a socialist, or those are the hot topics, but all kinds of biases you might bring. And so it's a great question for you to ponder and ask and even hear somebody else explain their bias, what it might be. Because then you think, oh, I... I didn't know that you could read it with that lens or that perspective. And so when you read this passage, what do you see? And it's uh, incredibly illuminating. And as with all good relationship conversations, you learn as much about the other person as you do about yourself. And that's what Jesus wants, us to walk with each other for this purpose and these reasons. And so last week at the park, if you were there, we told this story at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. We started at the end. Jesus tells a parable about a man, builds, a person who builds a house on, uh, out in the, in the wilds. One built it on the rock, one built it on the sand. Here's what he says. Anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like the sage who built his house on a rock. And the storm came, and you know the story. House stood up and Jesus is saying, look, if, if you're not sure about how to build or what to do, or if you're not sure about where you're headed, if you're wondering about how life works and how to move things in good directions, this is how you know. I, I'm, Jesus says, I, I'm going to nominate my words, incredibly audacious claim of his, as a way of life for you, as a way to approach issues and problems 
relationships and priorities and values. How should we approach this? Jesus says, I have an idea. I have some things that you might want to try. And this is what he says. If you do this, when difficulty happens, when it all hits the fan, when you have no idea which end is up, your house will stand as long as you've kind of considered my words and built thoughtfully and carefully. It's very much what Jesus said to Thomas and the disciples when he said, you're not sure which way to go or what to do or how to handle this. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. You just follow me. Ah, there's the invitation again. You just follow him. I don't know where you're headed. doesn't matter. Look at my steps. Go where I go. I don't know how to treat my... No, that's all right. You just do the things I teach you and we'll do it one thing at a time. And so the question that you could wrestle with from last week is this question. Now, you may be thinking... I. I didn't even do last, they didn't even do the first one. Now I'm two behind. I know it's going to pile up on you. You cannot, you have to stay ahead. And so it's important that you kind of take them one at a time. Maybe there'll be one today that you'll use at lunch or sometime this week with some people that you know. Here's the question that's worth wrestling with. What are one or two of the core values you're building your life on? This is a question that's worth being honest about because you only might as well start there. You know, Jesus takes you as you are and how you think and how you operate. So if you can start here, then you know which direction to move or whether it's sand or whether it's rock or something in between. But you have some core values that you've built your life on. And this isn't the churchy question with a churchy answer. That doesn't help anybody, right? I guess I'll look at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, no, no, start with what you know and how you live. What are one or two of the core values that you're building your life on? What are they? And you have some already. You know this. Maybe you haven't named them. Maybe you haven't written them down or described them. But if you are married, great question to discuss. If you're raising kids, even better question to discuss. If you run a business, if you are pondering a move or a direction, excellent question to discuss. What are the core values that you have? You could name some now. I bet if we had time and we were all sitting around a table, we could name some of the values, and you would say something like, well, I, you know, the way I was raised, I value hard work. That's what I value. I mean, you know, it's early bird gets the worm, and, you know, I got bootstraps that are made for pulling me up, and that's what I do. This is how I work. I, I know that if I don't put in the work, the job won't get done, and that's what my dad taught me. He started early and worked late, and I just, I have a, I bring a work ethic. One of the core values is work, work ethic, and it could be that that matters most to you. Some of you in the room have core values, listening online, you have core values because they were modeled by someone who raised you or someone you loved or mentored you, maybe even a professor, teacher, somebody like that. And you could begin thinking, well, my dad valued, and you go, oh, I guess I do too. I guess I do too. I live that way. Some of you have values based on the opposite of the way you were raised. You saw your parents and you thought, nope, not doing that. Not doing that at all. When, when, we, when we were first married, Donna had made dinner and we sat down to eat dinner and we got ready to clean up. So Donna went to the sink and I went to the living room. And I sat my tail down on the couch and waited for her to get done. She got like one dish done and she looked around and she came to the beginning of the living room and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, you said it was time to clean up. You're cleaning up. And she said, when I was raised, when I was brought up in the house I grew up in, she said, uh, after dinner, all of the men went to the living room. We're not doing that. That's not what we're doing. 
And I said, well, the Bible says you're to submit to me. And that's not what I said. That's not what I said. So I got up and helped her with dishes and did ever since. Here's the interesting part. So my boys, they grew up in our house. This was before we had boys, but they eventually grew up in that house where that core value was established. And Carter says today, he's our youngest son. He says, dad, I'll never forget. You would never let us leave the kitchen until everything was cleaned up. We all help. We all help together. And I thought, I didn't have two boys to have them sit in the living room. I had two boys so they would clean up the kitchen. And I wouldn't be alone, you know, doing it by myself. And I never was, of course. This is a core value that we had. What's your core value? What is it? It's worth asking a question, and here's why. Jesus is going to nominate a few for you. He's going to make some suggestions about some things that should be your core values. And if you've named them, or if you're aware of them, or you have some understanding of why you do what you do, or why you all spend the money the way you spend it, or why you take vacations for what these purposes are, there's a thousand of them that are up for possibility for you. You're going to decide, well, this is how we live or how we think, and this is what Jesus says, and there's some friction there, and I don't even know what to do with that. And Jesus is going to say, well, I have a suggestion. Follow me. And you say, nah, not with that thing. And you can live your life the way you want and live your life in opposition to what Jesus says to do. And then you'll find yourself or your relationship kind of dealing with a sand issue or a bad foundation. And Jesus is gracious enough to help you learn how to build again. And then you might decide there's some rock. What are one or two of the core values you are building your life on? Do you know what they are? Can you articulate them? Can you name them? Be very, very helpful for you to start with that. That would be great. So then Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount like this. He says this. One day, Matthew chapter 5, he records, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and he sat down. Now, this sermon in Matthew is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus went up to a rise in the ground and, and he sat down. It's how teachers taught, you know, Jewish rabbis. They would sit and students would stand. Thank goodness we've changed it around a bit. But Jesus went up to the mountainside so he could be seen and heard. And he sat down and he began to teach. The same stuff that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a lot of it is in Luke as well. Luke has some of those same words. But in Luke, Jesus did it from a very low spot, just happened to be where he was, and it's called the Sermon on the Plain. But we call it the Sermon on the Mount, right, in Matthew chapter 5. His disciples gathered around and he began to teach them. Now, before we get into the, any content into this, which will be in through October, November, up to Thanksgiving, before we get to Advent and Christmas, before we do that, I, I want to talk about that bias thing just a bit, and I want to sort of nominate a bias for you, or maybe a better way to say it is a lens through which you can view everything Jesus says, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but all of his teachings, but mainly through this series, the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters that there is a, a way to see what he says and that this lens will be and can be, if you, you know, put them on, transformative. Even if you've been in church all your life, it can absolutely turn things upside down regarding how he says what he says and how you might even live it. And you, you know what I mean by lens. So some of you obviously have glasses. You've been to the optometrist. You, you go there and you get a checkup, right? Because are your eyes getting better or are they getting worse? 
And it just so happens they might be getting worse. Maybe they're the same. Maybe you got LASIK and they got better. But if you go to the optometrist, you know what it's like. You sit in that chair, you put your chin in the thing, and they shove those glasses up to your eyes, and then the, the text says to you, you know, better or worse. They do that with you? Better or worse. How many of you think they both look awful? How many of you thought that? I don't know what's better or worse. Then they do it again, and you say, it's the same answer I gave you just a second ago because you did the same thing that you did. And so I'll never forget when I saw somebody that had glasses. The first person I remember that had glasses was my dad. Bad vision, he had glasses. And I saw other people with glasses then because I saw that dad had some. I was a little kid, didn't know any better, didn't know anything different. And I thought, they have something I don't have, so I, I want it. I want glasses. That's what I thought. I didn't understand that people who have glasses are somehow less than. Um, I'm just kidding. That's not true. But I did think, I want glasses. And dad said, well, this is how they work. And he handed me his glasses. And I put them over my eyes thinking, this is going to be amazing. And you know what I said? How can you, how can you see? And dad said, much better with these glasses. And so this is what a lens is. It's designed to change what you see. And if you take this lens and you begin to read any of the Gospels with the lens that we'll talk about, then it will change what you see. It will even change what the words of Jesus mean to you and how you live them out. And it's really the center of the Gospel, and it matters that much. So this is the lens. When Mark describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what he says. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee. John who? John the Baptist, right? You remember what John's message was? The kingdom of God is here. Knock it off, quit sinning. And then he also said, and look, there's the Lamb of God. And he pointed everybody to Jesus. But his initial message was the kingdom of God is here. So John was put in prison near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And he said, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus begins his ministry, John said, this is what's coming. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand or it is right here is a great translation of that. Jesus begins his ministry with the very same message. In other words, everything before me was a certain way, but now it's different. This is different now. It's a marker in time. And so what Jesus says, different than what John said, the time has come. Say it with me. You ready? The time has come. There's two Greek words for time. One is chronos, which means time happens. It's a chronological thing. It happens in order. It's how your chronograph works. It keeps time. If you have an expensive one, it does this. It sweeps. But most of your watches do this. It marks time by the second. Chronos. There's another word for time in the Greek, which is this word. And it is kairos. It's a different word. And it doesn't mean a moment in time. It means a season. So when you, if you're married were young and you decided that it was time to have kids and you said to maybe your spouse, maybe it's time we had kids. You didn't mean it's time. I mean, you might have. That's not generally what you mean. It's time that we had kids. What you meant was, I think, I think the season is right for us to make our family bigger. And so maybe you pursued that endeavor to have children. The time has come. It's a season. 
This time that Jesus inaugurated with the beginning of his ministry is the time that we're still in until he comes again. It is a kairos. It is a season. It is now. And it began with Jesus. And he announced it by saying this. The kingdom of God, what? Has come near. It's here. Or in other words, it is among us. This is why it was confusing to the disciples. The kingdom of God. You know what a kingdom is, right? A kingdom is a, it's a municipality. It's a, it's a government. Every kingdom has a king. And every kingdom has a rule. And it has a reign. And there is an order. And there's places you can go and places you can't go. And things you can do and things you can't do. Every kingdom is just like this. The disciples heard Jesus and John say, the kingdom is here. And they looked around. They said, I don't get it. Pilate's still in charge. Herod's still in charge. Rome's still over us. What's up? How is this different? Oh, it must be coming. And this is why Judas sold him out, thinking he would kick off a revolution. It's why Peter did what he did with a sword, thinking that everything would rise up and Pilate would be gone, Rome would be gone, and Jesus would be in charge, and the Jews would have their nation again. Jesus meant something very different, of course, which is why Judas lost his life and Peter got rebuked and Jesus died on the cross. But nonetheless, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. It's come here and it is now. If Jesus talked about anything more than anything else, it was the kingdom of heaven. It was the kingdom of God. I promise you, open up the Gospels just anywhere, point your finger and start reading. And you might go one word or ten words, but not very many, before you read something about the kingdom of heaven and about the kingdom of God. At almost every turn, Jesus is saying this, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he knows it's confusing. He knows it's hard to get your arms around this idea. And so he gave incredible texture and meaning to what the kingdom of heaven is like. So the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who went out to sow his seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who had a, knew a treasure was, was buried in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who wanted to have a great pearl. All of these stories... Jesus is trying to give texture and meaning. The kingdom of heaven is like a fisherman who let his net down into a lake. Let me describe it for you. Let me give it, uh, let me, let me give it some depth and some pictures that you can take with you because Jesus knew that this was the most important thing he ever talked about. And he talked about it all the time. At one point, the Pharisees ask him, when's the kingdom of God coming? And they, Jesus is thinking, I just told you. I've told you so many times. It's here now. And then Jesus says this, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Like, oh, oh there it is. I, I see it down there on the street corner. That's where it is. See here, see there. And then he says this, for indeed the kingdom of God is what? Oh, now you're getting somewhere. Now we know something about the kingdom of God. It is within you. Or another translation, you'll find it, various translations, for the kingdom of God is among us. It's both. It's in you and it's in me. And then when we come together, the kingdom of God is among us. That's what happens, Jesus says. It's a different kind of kingdom. Near the end of his life, Jesus is having a chat with Pilate about what is truth, one of the great philosophical sections in the book of John. It's powerful, it's incredible. And Jesus answered this question. He said to Pilate, you know, he, Pilate says, are you, are you indeed king of the Jews? And 
he says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, look at what he says. This is so interesting because you know what happened in the garden, right? If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. What did his followers do? They fought to keep him being handed over to the Jewish leaders. This is why Peter missed it and he was restored. And, and many of the, most of the disciples missed the whole deal. But we have the whole story and they came around and none of us would ever even remotely misunderstand, would we? that the kingdom of heaven is not an earthly kingdom. Because we're smarter than that and we have the whole story right here. So we would never confuse our citizenship and where it really belongs because we know. Then he says this, but my kingdom is what? Not of this world. But every kingdom has a king and every kingdom has rules and every kingdom has a reign. So what is this kingdom of heaven? Well, you could spend a lifetime, and many theologians do, understanding it and reading about it. And, but you, in just a few minutes, have probably grabbed hold of and probably already knew most of these ideas. That the kingdom of God is, well, it's here and now. It's within us, and it's among us. And it's, it's not an earthly kingdom. And all these things are true. And Jesus tells it, teaches it, explains it over and over and over. It's almost as if he thought, this will be the one thing they'll forget. This will be the one thing they will have a hard time remembering as they go through their life and engage in their relationships. They'll start to think that earth is kind of their deal and it is the way it is and that heaven's some other place that they'll one day go to that's so much better than where they live now. And Jesus never taught that. In fact, what he taught was the exact opposite of that. Do you remember how he taught us to pray? Do you remember what he prayed? He said, Father in heaven, may your, what? May your kingdom, what? May your kingdom come. May your will, what? Be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom coming means that heaven comes where? Here, that's right. And so probably the phrase that helps me the most, and maybe you already get it with these three, but this is the phrase that helps me understand the kingdom more than anything else. That the kingdom of God more than anything else is the rule and the reign of Jesus. Why? Well, every kingdom has a king. Every kingdom has rules. Every kingdom has a, has a law, a rule, and a reign. And this is how the world works in the kingdom of God. It's here and now, it's with us, it's among us, it's not an earthly kingdom, but more than that, it is the rule and reign of Jesus. And here's what that means. It means that you and I live in a place, live in a spot, live in a, a state or a, a decision, a volitional choice where Jesus has said to you, follow me. And you say, I will follow you. I wanna be a part of your rule and your reign. You are my king and I'll live in your kingdom. But yet, it is a kingdom that is within us and among us, but it's not an earthly kingdom, so he doesn't have a palace, and he doesn't have a consulate, and he doesn't have a, a board, he doesn't have a fiefdom. None of these things that are normally associated with a king and kingdom, so it's very different. This is why Paul says, remember Corinthians just a few weeks ago, that we focus on what is unseen, not on what is seen. This is the kingdom of God. And we are in this life together. 
And so when I'm in this life with you and you're in it with me, we travel together, we live life together, we work on things together, we enjoy life in various places, we vacation together and we eat together and we have our life in the kingdom because the rule and the reign of Jesus is in me and it's in you. And that means we think differently, love differently. It means when Jesus offers up a core value, we say, I've got some revision uh, work to do in my heart. I gotta change that up. It means I pick a different path. I wanted to go right, Jesus went left. And so for a while I might travel on my own, I miss his company and I tried to catch up with him again. It's the rule and the reign of Jesus. It's the invitation when he says, I want you to come and follow me. Now, if you have this lens with the kingdom of God on your glasses and you put them on and you open up the Sermon on the Mount, it changes everything. And it's like glasses or like when some of you got, you know, uh, progressive lenses and the doctor said, I know you hate them, but what? What do you say? So give, give it a while. Give it a while. You'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. It's the exact same way with this idea. The kingdom of God. Oh, I don't think in terms of a kingdom. Well, I live in a democracy. Or, I mean, they told me it was a democracy. I'm not really sure what it is. But, and, and I know how Congress doesn't work. And I, I don't understand kingdom life. So I have to wear these glasses for a while and, and get used to them. And so with this lens on and with this idea of the kingdom in place, Jesus steps up to this little rise in the land and he begins to speak. And the very first words he says are these. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the what? You haven't even read eight words and you're already reading about the kingdom of heaven. And with this one statement, Jesus takes everything we know about God and turns it completely upside down. That's for next week though. You and I are to read with these lenses about the kingdom of heaven. Here's a question that will help you do that, okay? You ask this question mostly for your own reflection, but if you are brave enough to discuss it with somebody else, then you'll get somewhere, I promise. It's kind of a clunky question, so let me talk you through it. What do you bring with you into your relationships and your various settings of your life? In other words... When you walk into a place and you interact with other people, you bring some things with you. I have a little backpack that whenever I go home, I take it. Whenever I come to the office, I take it. It's got my essentials in it, stuff I need to get my job done. If I go to the coffee shop to work remotely, I take my backpack and I've got everything I need in there. There's a bunch of other stuff that you bring. It's a, it's a worldview. It's a core value. It's an attitude about your day. It's some of your experiences. It's whether you feel hopeful or discouraged. And every interaction you have, every place that you go, you bring some of that stuff with you. It's invisible, but it's still with you, and you have it all right there. And you know what this is like. And when you bring it into a place, the mood, the, the setting, the interactions all change because you're present. And sometimes they change in incredible, wonderful, positive ways. And sometimes they go the other direction. Some of you grew up in a home when you were being raised by maybe a couple parents. Some of you grew up in a home where there was a member of the family who brought some things with them whenever they either came home from a day at work or entered the room or entered a discussion. 
And it could be that the home you grew up in, somebody brought with them anger or, or bitterness or judgmental, critic, critical spirit, those kinds of things. And you know that the, the temperature, the nature of the room changed immediately when that person walked in the door. And even me just saying that, you have some feelings about that because you remember what it was like when dad came home and had a bad day at work. Everything changed. When the boys were little, I could come home from a day at work and Donna within seconds could kind of read it on my face what kind of day I had. She would know whether I was stressed or anxious or worried or, or light and, and giving and, and thoughtful and playful. She would know. And we had little boys, you know, four, six years old, for example, and it would deeply impact the nature of the mood of the house. And so if she saw this on my face, she might say, you know, she might throw, you know, uh, a VCR tape. So we used to have these things called VCR tapes. And uh, she would throw one of those in and then say to me, hey, let's, let's go to the bedroom. And so we'd go to the bedroom and she, we would sit down and she'd say, what happened? What happened at work? I'd say, what do you mean? She said, oh, I can see it all over you. You know, you're stressed, you're worried, you're anxious. And so Donna would bring to that kind of interaction empathy, understanding, compassion, intuitive mothering and, you know, wifely stuff. I would bring home anxiety, fear, anger, and agitation on that given day. On any given day, the roles could be reversed. What do you bring with you into your relationships, the various settings of your life? What do you bring? So as a follower of Jesus, the hope that we all engage in is that you would bring the rule and the reign of Jesus. And some days you probably excel at that and some days you probably struggle. And some days, most I would say are probably a mix of both and you know, we fail and flounder and then we get our footing and make some progress. Some of you have worked with anxious leaders in the workplace and you know what they bring to the table is you know, confusion and chaos and fear. Some of you have worked with thoughtful, intuitive, compassionate, empathetic leaders and what they bring is, well, hopefully it would be the rule and the reign of Jesus and they bring vision and compassion and a, a picture of a hopeful future. The difference is night and day. Here's the question you ought to ask. Maybe some people that know you really well and that will be honest enough with you even if it's a hard thing to do. What do you bring with you into your relationships and various settings of your life? And you ask this question not for condemnation or not to feel worse about yourself. We don't need that. That's not helpful. You just set that aside. Shame has no role in this and has no play in it at all. We do this so that we can know what it means to follow Jesus. That's all. So where am I not? Where am I likely to grab my own thing or take control of my life in a way that diminishes the rule and the reign of Jesus? And when am I likely to lean into who Jesus is and who he's called me to be and be an instrument of his love and grace? Some of your friends know that when you walk in the room, what they're going to get is the most compassionate and caring and empathetic version of you because you bring the rule and the reign of Jesus. And they know they could tell you anything about themselves and you will look with them on them with no judgment and you will give them the care that God would give them if you were there in the flesh. Why? Because the kingdom of God is within you. Some of you are in workplaces 
And when you walk in, they say something like this. Oh, thank God you're here. It was chaos before you got here. It was like the void of Genesis 1. It was dark and dismal. But now that you're here, I know it's going to be organized and thoughtful and what was a mess, things are going to get in their right place because you bear the image of God in this very specific and unique way. And the reason you do that is because you bring with you the rule and the reign of Jesus. You're part of his kingdom. You follow him. Some people believe that they are better versions of themselves when they're around you because you call out in them the virtues that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have set aside fear and worry and anxiety because it does not serve you and God's called you to a different place. And so in your interactions, you bring the rule and the reign of Jesus. Why? Well, the kingdom of God is within you. It's what happens when two people who have the kingdom of God within them find themselves together. Oh, then the kingdom of God is among us. And what if there's 10 of us or 12 of us? What if there are a couple hundred of us that went to our various places out of this little place called Castle Oaks and we decided that we were going to carry with us the rule and the reign of Jesus? What would Castle Rock look like? What would your homes look like? I know, I know. We're going to fail tomorrow. That's all right. You just pick it up and start again at 11. You might fail by noon, but we do it again at one and we fall on the grace of God and allow him to fill us and we move in his power, not in our own effort, but it starts when we surrender. So this is the question that I think is worth your energy and your reflection. And as you ask it and answer it, you'll feel God's grace beckoning you to a place of deeper surrender. So what do you bring with you into your relationships, various settings of your life? Why don't you pray with me? Just bow your heads. Lord, in this moment, we uh, offer our surrender to you. And we ask that you would speak to us about this very thing. Lord, our hope is that we would follow you. But there are a few things that come to mind for me this week when I chose my own path instead of following you. So Lord, we recognize that what that means is that uh, at a, a moment in time, I was my own king and made my own decisions and took my own path. Usually, Lord, in my life, that results in anxiety and fear and selfishness and control. Lord, in this moment, may your Holy Spirit guide us and lead us. What does it result in your life when you uh, temporarily displace the rule and reign of Jesus in your heart, in your life, in your decisions, values, your biases. Lord, there's many things that we carry. Some of us carry a past that we haven't laid down at your feet. Some of us carry a fear of the future that leaves us paralyzed, unable to surrender to you. Lord, our hope and prayer is that we would, in this moment, surrender to you anew, more fully, respond to the invitation to follow you and declare that we want more than anything our lives, our thoughts, our, our future to be built on solid rock. And so we, we declare that we surrender to the rule and reign of your son. Carry the kingdom of God in us and among us 
Lord, may we be the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done here in us and among us, here on earth as it is in heaven.